You can go home anytime you want. That's it. You're bullshitting me. No. He's bullshitting me, right? No, Randall. He's telling you the truth. As a matter of fact, there are very few men here who are committed. Uh, hello, everybody, and welcome to You'll Probably Agree. Uh, today, I once more have uh, my usual co-host on, uh, Ian Simmons from kickseat.com. Uh, today, he has a very nice, fancy new uh, flu, uh, microphone. I tried to use my usual lav, but uh, <laughs> it's not working with my fancy H6N. Oh, yeah, you do have the H5, <laughs> so we got to get you to, to use that. Um so today, uh, I wanted. I know we talked, uh, you know, during this whole pandemic conversation that is going to go on for um, uh, an, an indefinite amount of time. Uh, wanted to. We, we brought up sort of, uh, you know, the Dark Knight Rises on your show as sort of a movie that doesn't directly relate to what's going on now. But I wanted to talk about something that relates to uh, the state's mental health. Uh, how America doesn't choose to uh, acknowledge it and how we seriously need mental health. And it's being looked over because of the absolute chaos that we're living in today. And uh, one movie, as someone who's dealt with his own mental health, uh, I wrote an article about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And it it talked about how uh, it's a movie that's surprisingly relevant. It, it stands uh, by today because it really does is sort of an allegory, if you will, it, at least. Okay, whole healthcare system works and how it's actually continued on since the 1980s through uh, Ronald Reagan, and I'll get a little more detail with that how it's uh, gotten worse. But um, have you had a chance to uh, revisit? And I'm putting my rp mcmurphy look for the uh podcast with the leather jacket and the hat <laughs> oh yeah and um, it's uh, I, th I think if it were a jean jacket it would be absolutely note perfect but yeah when the yeah. when the camera came on i saw what you're doing i was like that's 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 excellent so yeah <laughs> um but yeah i um i watched cuckoo's nest for only the second time uh yesterday mm. and i hadn't seen it in it had probably been 25 years um because it was one of my dad's favorite movies and i remember watching it once with him and not really getting it um and then i watched it yesterday and then i read your piece which was was very well done and very uh personal so um yeah i'm excited to talk about this movie uh because my reaction to it now is different than i expected it to be um, and I don't know if we're going to agree on everything today. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see. This seems to be a reoccurring theme. Where you're like, I didn't like it, but then I saw it and then I liked it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which well, is good. You know, that you can never see a film, like Kubrick said, that you can never really watch a film once and then uh, present a real objective viewpoint to it. You have to see a movie more than once. Uh, although the first time I saw it, I. I think I enjoyed it quite a bit. And yeah, as the years go on, it really speaks to me who, who struggled with his own mental health, especially now more than ever. Uh, how have you been doing recently with this uh, series of events? Um, I like, I, I feel, please be honest. Cause I'll be, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I've been fine. It's uh it's a weird state of affairs because, you know, mostly with the news, it seems to be a different, 
take every other day. Like, hey, we might get out of this soon to be the food banks are running out of food and, you know, people are getting a little sketchy. Uh, so I don't know. Um, yeah. Just trying to keep busy and keep positive, And that's about it. I, I've got yeah. you know, my moments like everybody else when you're just kind of staring off into the darkness, wondering what does it all mean? But uh, yeah, overall doing all right. Yeah, that's good. I wish I could say the same. Uh, no, for uh, me. Yeah, you know, I, saying, I understand. I'm this uh, yeah. this cheery optimist is <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in the minority, yeah. I'm sure, of opinions here. But yeah, no, it, it's, it's good to be optimistic. It's just for me, I, I just it's hard for me to do it. I mean, I've suffered with depression and anxiety disorder uh, my whole life. Uh, I've recently started taking pills for bipolar disorder um and recently just trying to deal with everything has been horrific uh to say the least um i i mean i remember i was calling my uh psychiatrist recently and i told her uh is there someone i could talk to a therapist and she said well due to pandemic she was russian by the way uh you uh you cannot get in touch with anybody and i thought that was kind of shocking it's like you could have at least given me the phone number to a therapist to talk to and today more than ever it's important to have someone to talk to because if we're going to be locked down for something that could be the trajectory of 18 months uh not everything will be locked down then but a a majority of things will be that way until we uh, return to some semblance of normal with a new form of normal that that's going to emerge it's going to be incredibly difficult um but i i guess uh what i wrote my piece is that we do all now kind of live in an insane asylum we're all locked up we all uh think we're going crazy um and when really a lot of us are not as a matter of fact insane um and even with the label as crazy some people uh can appear completely insane and normal and uh you know outwardly but uh you know inside it could be a completely different case and i feel especially now there's a huge rise in uh, uh suicide calls to the suicide hotline and uh, I mean, in New York, it, you know, they would maybe get like 60 calls within a certain district a day, and now they're getting a thousand. And especially people do. And when this relates to Cuckoo's Nest, it, it really is sort of a story that is about people who you generally assume in the beginning are insane, but then as the narrative continues on, you you realize that they sort of submit themselves into the institution that they're based on and they uh, basically become so comfortable with a system that abuses them that they want to stay there. And I think we're sort of in this mindset now that we're going to return to normal, that everything's going to be all right and that you know, we can go back to our lives and we're not realizing that we have to restructure the American healthcare system, not in just terms of how we deal with physical health, but mental health as well. Um, And when, when you watch that film and you see 
sort of the individual struggles that everyone goes through, whether it be McMurphy, whether it be uh, Billy, um, whether it be uh, many of the other various characters. I particularly do think of Billy because he's this young guy who basically is in prison because his mother is such close friends with Nurse Ratched, who quite literally plays the devil in that movie, especially with her hair, how it forms up like little devil horns that we are sort of our country's institutionalizing ourselves. And I think it's a great film. That's a call to action to transform the way things are. And it, it's certainly a fascinating piece for me. You know, and that was the biggest surprise to me watching Cuckoo's Nest because nurse rat nurse ratchet has played, you know, incredibly by Louise Fletcher Yeah, has been such, she's an iconic I guess a uh, pop cultural villain, not so much anymore. I think because the, the movie is, <laughs> it's uh, you know it's forty five years old this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, as the the decades wear on, it's not necessarily as relevant as when it was you know being parody on The Simpsons or whatever. Mm. But yeah, she's got this kind of reputation as being this you know evil character. And watching it yesterday, I failed to see it. Um, mm. I don't I don't consider Nurse Ratchet to be a villain. I consider her to be. And, and it's very interesting the the point about uh, being friends with Babbitt, you know, Billy's mom. Um, I didn't see that as a as a problem. I saw it as you know she struck me as someone who is legitimately concerned. Probably got into this business wanting to legitimately help people, but she's older. She's probably in her forties because I think that's Louise Fletcher was forty one when she did this movie. So we can assume she's got a couple decades under her belt. You know, she's partnered with a young nurse who you know the actress was 21 when she did this movie so it's sort of this contrast of like the the young wide-eyed nurse who already sitting in these group therapy sessions you can see this look of you know it's either sort of horror or just detachment uh you know on her face as she's watching these guys talk about their lives or not talk about their lives and have these crazy pardon the expression outbursts Mm-hmm. I mean, we only get, you know, what amounts to a few scenes spread out over a couple of months, you know, in the the McMurphy saga, as it were. They've been dealing with it for however many years they've been on the on mm-hmm. the ward. So I see and, and you know, there is a point at which, um, you know, McMurphy is his case is being discussed with the uh, the hospital administrators. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you know, this guy isn't crazy. He just, you know, he's trying to get out of, you know, prison and work detail. So he's com- he's committing himself essentially here, saying he's crazy. We have to evaluate it. We're not buying it. We're going to ship him back to prison. And Ratchet steps in, says, um, "What does she say?" I wrote it down here somewhere. But um, oh, when when uh, when they said when they were talking about sending uh, McMurphy back to prison, she basically right. says, "I think that would be a disservice to him, and I actually want to help him out because I think we can help him." Essentially. Yes. Yeah. 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 The, 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 you paraphrasing the quote, quote wonderfully. I just can't find it. In my chicken scratch. <laughs> but so okay. what I see there is someone who def- yep. does not, you know, she might not like him, but I think she also sees that there, you know, he is a troubled individual that maybe she can possibly reach, but yeah. he is so acerbic and wild and distrustful and hateful towards her because of what he sees her as representing. Mm-hmm. I don't think she is the devil. I think McMurphy sees her as that because he, she is a challenge institutionally to his 
whims, which yeah. I'm fine with because if everybody was running around like Jack McMurphy, we'd be living in Game of Thrones all over again. <laughs> Institutions exist for a reason. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, there's certainly uh, two perspectives you can uh, take with that. Uh, I know uh, Ken Kedsey, uh, the author of the novel, absolutely hated this film. Like, he even tried to sue the filmmakers, uh, I guess, for making the film. And uh, I guess he stumbled upon it, like, in a hotel room one day, and he didn't know where it was, and he noticed what it was. And he was like, ah, and he switched it off. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, did but- you ever read, did you read the book? No, but I do know that I think if I did read the book, I probably wouldn't like the movie. You know, one of those like I, it's sort of like Flowers for Algernon is my favorite book, but I but I hated Charlie. You know, or I didn't hate it, but God, they they butchered the hell out of that novel, and I would love to see. Uh, well, now now it feels like that movie wouldn't be that important anymore, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, modern rendition of it. Uh, but with Nurse Ratched, it, it's certainly the way Louise Fletcher played the role was she didn't want to outwardly play the character as this this villainous devil and she wanted to play it from an empathetic angle or a sympathetic one i should say and when she does try to in my mind pretend to be sympathetic it makes her all the more horrid because you see people who pretend that they care for you but really they don't you're just a paycheck for them you know she she's sort of the epitome of and i like the note you wrote where she came in wanting to help people but throughout the years i think she uh grew bitter towards her position so she sort of used it as a means to have power over these people in this institution so when she does her group therapy sessions with them, for instance, she is turning them against each other as they're having their outbursts. And she she pretends that she isn't pleased with what's going on in these sessions, but at the same time, she's able to uh, control her power dynamic over them. And in my mind, I think that she is someone who sort of to turn towards the dark side in a way who originally had good intentions and it could be interpreted in multiple ways because we don't know. It does kind of leave it. Oh, I mean, I don't think for Milos Foreman or for, uh, Lawrence, I don't know how to say his name, Hobbin or B Goldman who wrote the film they they thought, you know, Oh, well she, she's someone who, you know, might be good. They kind of unequivocally said, oh, no, she's bad. But it's an interesting take to think maybe she does want to help them, but she doesn't know how to. Well, I guess my, my question to you is, what are you basing your assumptions on? I mean, did did the filmmaker say that she was a villain? Because watching it, I went in expecting, because I, I think I misremembered her as an evil character from when I first mm-hmm. watched the movie. And I was like 15, 16 years old. So a lot of the thing just kind of flew right over my <laughs> head. Or the cuckoo's vest, <laughs> as it were. Um, but watching it now, I was I was struck by how whatever you know this pop culture understanding of her character has been. I didn't see any evidence of it. Mm. I mean, like none. So when you're saying that you've got this perception of her, I guess is that based on? And this is not as no offense, but sort of projecting huh. 
onto this character's <laughs> film, right, yeah. or something that you're actually seeing that I didn't. So I'm, I'm curious to have that conversation. It's a little bit of both, and I'm glad you bring that up. Uh, yes, a little bit of it is from personal experience, as I've, I've, the, the psychiatrist I'm seeing now, uh, first time I saw her, uh, she, she said, uh, do you have problem with weight? I said, why is that? She goes, I have eyes. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. So, so it, you, well, let me ask you about this, because yeah. I, I just, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't want to derail thing, but no. I remember you wrote about this, this scene, you know, when I'm going to call it a scene, the episode with your psychiatrist and, yeah. uh, and the pills in your piece, and it was very striking. Um, and I don't know how any of this works, so pardon my naivete, <laughs> no, but I'm just going to okay. ask, like, so the first time you saw your psychiatrist, she yeah. made that, you know, kind of crack about your weight. What leverage do you have as the patient to say, um, thank you, I'm going to ask to see someone else? Do you go back to a healthcare network? Do you go to what institution can you go to to even lodge a complaint to, you know, about this person? I'm very glad that you asked that. Uh, you, you know what, if they're not in your network, yeah, it's very hard to find someone who is in my network um who could essentially help me uh in chicago you can't find anyone and uh if you want to find someone where you know you're not paying through the nose to see them they have to be there so you can complain but nobody's gonna care nobody's gonna do anything so in the, the case of nurse ratchet for instance you know when mcmurphy's sitting there and yes he is outwardly antagonizing her for his own entertainment in a way he still had a point where he began to subconsciously care for the patients around him and when he was complaining to the staff of the film one of which uh, I, i'm trying to remember the doctor's name in my head who he's talking to but he was actually a real life doctor in the ohio uh state mental institute that they were filming in mm. um and uh essentially you know we could complain about her but it doesn't matter. She's hired by the state. They, they're not going to get rid of her. And you do deal with, I've dealt with some people who were wonderful and genuinely cared for you. Uh, but you also have a lot of people who I think become disillusioned, who become bitter, who, you know, say, I did this many years of school. I don't, you know, I don't care anymore. And maybe they think they care, but they don't. And I think uh, Nurse Ratchet, on that personal level for me, seemed that way. She pretends that she has uh, sympathy for these uh, patients, but really she doesn't. Uh, the other reason why I think that she's sort of a villain is because in the original novel, from what I understood, even from what the author himself said, she was a villain. And in all the behind-the-scenes videos, they talk about her being a villain and how... Uh, Louise Fletcher wanted to portray her in a more sympathetic angle. Well, I mean, I, I got to call call you on that because I don't think that counts. I mean, if something is in the book, but it doesn't yeah. make it to the movie, I mean, that doesn't because there there are going to be people watching this who, aside from seeing that it was based on a Ken Kesey novel during the credits, they're not going to say, oh, shit, I got to pause this and go back and read the book and watch the movie. They're going to watch the movie as its own thing. And. Louise Fletcher's interpretation, if she, if she said she's going to play this as a sympathetic character, then automatically that character is no longer a villain. Because if she's playing it with a way 
the audience is going to see her mm-hmm. as sympathetic and that's her goal as an actress, then unless she's doing this like 4D chess kind of a thing where she's going to play her as sympathetic, even though the script blatantly points out evil things that she does, you know, that that doesn't really work. Um, I see her as a not a compromised character, although I do because I you keep going back to this idea of she thinks she's doing good or she cares, but she really doesn't. Again, I see that as a viewer interpretation. Um, a lot of what she does, she doesn't seem to relish, except when she occasionally when she wins against McMurphy. But that's only because my interpretation, you know, just putting it out there, if she does not win against him, then that cliche about the inmates running the asylum comes closer to a reality. She mm-hmm. has to uphold the policies of the institution. They have rules because it's not like a classroom where you got the occasional unruly student. These are adults who yeah. some of them are in there because they've been you know, prone to violence and they are sedated with drugs to help keep those impulses under control, whatever you might think about that. You know, she can't buckle. She has to be you know, the, the drill sergeant, like in, you know, full metal jacket, you know, you got to <laughs> take these misfits and shape them into something that are going to allow the fabric of this institution to survive. Right. Um, that, uh, the thing is, uh, even the filmmakers, uh, themselves, uh, Milos Foreman said she's a villain, you know, well, and that's, even that's fine, but, but Louise, it, watching Louise it, Fletcher herself even said that she, she, she isn't morally a, good person but she tried to make her something that the audience wouldn't want to basically vomit you know instantly when seeing her uh well I, I, I understand that but i'm saying yeah. as a viewer yeah yeah yeah. free from context of like you know I, I like stuff, right again yeah. i've heard that she's a villain but i've never heard specifically what she does in the movie that's villainous it's not like i've heard for decades oh she's villainous because you know she strapped the electrodes to this guy's head and you know and and shocked him for no reason or she deprived these people of their lunch for six days you know i think a lot of this i feel like it gets wrapped up in the mental health institution stories from the 40s that sort of inspired at least this film and i'm not sure about the novel but it was a big scandal about you know you'd see people lying in their own filth and all this other stuff um but Nurse Ratchet, she's a supposedly terrible character who every day gets up, goes to work, administers medicine, and sits down and has group therapy chats with these people who, until McMurphy comes in and sort of like injects himself into the situation. And, you know, he does do some good in getting people talking, but they're having these same disjointed conversations every day. It's hard to get people to speak. You know, she could very well be the taskmaster and say, I'm going to deprive you of food until you tell me your life story or, (laughs) you know, break out the fire hoses. But she doesn't do that. So all I'm doing is looking for evidence, unbiased evidence in the performance. I don't I don't care what Milos Forman says. If he meant for her to be a villain, in my opinion, he was unsuccessful in that in that endeavor. Okay, well, that's a good that's an interesting interpretation. Uh, I think it's something where you have to read between the lines when you see her on screen. And everyone's going to have their image of her. Uh, the majority uh, doesn't see her as a uh, good person. But it's it's good to see that you saw something else in her. I, I'm sure Louise Fletcher would be very happy with that. Because she wanted people to uh, to actually not 
uh, be so adherent towards that character. And, you know, for me, I, I'm glad that you saw some form of empathy in it. Obviously, I have my own bias, but at the same time, uh, I feel like everyone who thinks they're doing good, uh, I don't think there's anyone who's just outwardly evil in real life. They all think that they're just, you know, from, from you know, the goodest person in the world to the most sickening individual. Uh, and what dictates uh, between good or bad is entirely up to the viewer. Uh, I don't think she consciously wants to hurt these patients, but inside she, she does because she knows she doesn't really have anything outside that world. But again, that's reading between the lines. What you're seeing on screen just plainly, you know, if you're not looking between the lines, you're not, you know, seeing her, you know, you know, leaving patients in their filth or electroshock therapying them. Yeah, she seems like she cares and she's trying to keep the place from falling completely apart and sees McMurphy as a threat and even gives him a chance, even when he takes over the mental institution and has everyone drinking and partying and 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 just basically destroying the place. So I do see that 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 uh, uh, sort of understanding for her character. Yeah, I'm just I'm trying to figure out like what the what the lines are that you're reading between. Yeah. Um, because by that logic, you can take the most beloved character like Forrest Gump and say, but what was he really thinking? I know he never did anything to harm anybody, but deep down inside, he really hated Jenny, and that's why he was trying to get a relationship with her and, and control her and get her off drugs. That was his way of being ultra-conservative. I mean, it's just that kind of thing. Like, you can say that about literally any character. I'm just looking for evidence within the movie to even suggest that, okay. you know... Okay, well, for evidence, let's say, when they're doing the group therapy sessions, does she really try to help anyone? Or does she try to put people on the spot when they're uncomfortable and they don't want to answer a question, yet she continues to persist? Well, but there is something to be said for, and that is a method of, of therapy, is getting people to confront and to not just be able to crawl back into their rooms. I mean, she did bring up a good point about uh, when she was confronted, like, why are, the, why are this, the rooms locked, you know, after we wake up in the morning? She said, well, you can't just go back and lay in your bed all day because I don't remember what the exact quote was, but it was about the dangers of solitude and, you know, group being amongst people is, you know, therapeutic. And, you know, there is something to be said for that. And her method of having people sit in a group and confront their issues together, that is, a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not something she invented, right? Yeah. It, was, it was something that the hospital obviously believed in and endorsed, whether or not it was right or wrong or what the results were, she can't necessarily be held responsible for her patients, you know, inattentiveness or not wanting to do it. And on top of that, if most of the people, let's say all of the people in that group of nine were there voluntarily, they submitted themselves to whatever program it was. They signed themselves in. They possibly read some kind of waiver or something saying you're going to be subjected to this, these conditions. This is what this means. So, they were caught to a certain extent in their own mental prisons and unable or unwilling to face the world outside. But in doing so, they have to take responsibility for the fact that, okay, if you're not going to, if you're going to give up your freedom willingly to be in this institution, here's what that means. So if you got a problem with it, then sign yourself out and go back to the street. But if not, 
we're going to be here to try and help you the best we can. And again, if that's not good enough, you know, there's other places you can go. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a fair point. It's just she didn't seem to do anything to really help anyone. If she, if they really want to talk to someone, talk to them one on one. Actually, try to get to know them as a person rather than kind of creating this angry mob that was around them. You know, that's I mean, that's a fair point. I don't know. And then using Billy's mom sort of as a weapon against him when he was sleeping uh, with Candy. You know, she said, I'm going to have to tell your mother about this. You know, she knew she didn't have to say that. She knew that that would trigger him. But she wanted to make him feel bad in front of everybody. And she didn't have to turn to the camera and say, I want him to feel bad. You know? <laughs> well, you no, I mean, see- well, that's the thing is when that issue came up, I was thinking, I don't know that she was taking particular relish in having to talk to the mother. It seemed like she was trying to shame him for what he had done, you know, because what he had done was it could be considered shameful. Um, or at least at the very least dangerous, you know, being with this woman. I don't know how old Billy was supposed to be if he's if he's, you know, 18 or if he's, you know, 23. I mean, Brad Dourif was very young when he did this. But it is possible that she, you know, if the mom inquires, like, how is Billy doing? You know, I don't know. Maybe there's a patient confidentiality thing. She certainly probably isn't going to be able to lie, especially if they are friends. So she's caught in a, you know, a bad spot. It is the most problematic, I think, exchange that she has and the best evidence that there is something else going on with Nurse Ratched. But by the time we get to that point, she's just had it with everybody. You know, Mm -hmm. she's given them nothing but trust and she's tried to help them. And at the first sign of things breaking down, they go and have this drunken, debaucherous party, which to her mind probably undermines all of the work that she thought, all the progress she thought was being made and you know creates this ripple of distrust so i can see at this point her seeing those patients as being villainous and unworthy of her devotion but if she knew that billy was suicidal even if she snapped that that's just I, something I don't, that you can't do was there any indication that billy was suicidal well, it wasn't why, a spe- he wasn't in a special guy's ward. 18 years old he serves all the time he obviously does have the ability to go and socialize but he's afraid because Nurse Ratchet wants to keep him afraid, you know. And that relationship with his mother shows that. Even before they they talk about it, when, when uh, he's talking about the girl that he proposed to, mm-hmm. you know, and then she says, "Well, that's a lie. You know it." And she's saying it in front of everybody, you know, just from a pure therapeutic uh, perspective. You'd never do that in a million I, I, years. Well, yeah. I. Again, I don't know that that's yeah. the case. Now, I, again, I don't know much about therapy, but I yeah. have seen other movies and TV shows this yeah. tactic used. I mean, what good is it to allow someone to be in a group setting and openly lie to the person who's administering therapy and the other people to paint themselves in a better light than is the truth? Yeah. And by saying, you know, that's a lie. And he's like, oh, well, I guess I can't get away with that. What does it mean that I'm trying to lie? You know, what is what am I trying to cover up? And yeah. getting that out is therapeutic, right? Yeah, but only so, roasting them isn't. But she wasn't roasting him. She just said, you're lying. She didn't say, that's a lie, Billy, and, and, and you know it, and you should be ashamed of yourself. And all that. She just well, said, she that's a lie. That way, but right, sense. but she did say, she, what is she going to do? She's like, well, Billy, I don't know if that's exactly the truth. She's fed up at this point with all these people. 
right? She's just going to call them on their nonsense because, you know, soft peddling, it doesn't work because these people are, whether they're clinically insane or just insufferable and they've gone to this place because they can't handle the outside world, you know, there's nothing wrong with cutting through the bullshit. As far as him being suicidal, there is no indication as, as he is no less outwardly unstable than any of the other people in that ward. In fact, it could be argued that he is one of the more stable people, given some of the behavior and outbursts that we see. So when he slices his neck open, that is, you know, it's a surprise to everybody, you know, even the nurse. I mean, it's not like they're like, okay, if he was a real suicide case, they wouldn't have just said, okay, orderlies, take him, you know, whatever. They would have, I assume, strapped him down or restrained him somehow and not let him go unsupervised and grab that glass because we see him go off screen with, you know, in the arms of two people. And then two minutes later, the young nurse comes in splattered in blood. So at some point, the nerd, the orderlies left him somewhere, which I don't know if that's a continuity problem or if there's something from the book. But as an audience member, I'm like, What's going on there? I certainly didn't think that that meant that he was, you know, there was a suicide problem beforehand. Right. Well, um, I think to your point, as you were saying uh, a little earlier, she's fed up with the job. And mm -hmm. you, you could just tell that's why she's getting short with these patients. And when she's fed up with it, she doesn't care anymore. I, I, I don't I disagree with that. I think you can be fed up with something and still care. You know, again, when I say fed up, I'm talking about, you know, she's possibly reached the point where a lot of people who are in the mental health industry reach after being in the job for two decades, which is yeah. kind of, uh, I can't remember what the who the comic book is or the movie. <laughs> it's like, all it takes is one bad day. Maybe it's The Dark Knight or something. That was, uh, that was uh, I have that book, actually. <laughs> where is it? It's The Killing Joke. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was on the right track with the Joker, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um that's what but yeah. <laughs> so but it's it's that idea that she was putting up with as much as that as she could and still doing her yeah. job. Then you've got RP McMurphy coming in who was such a human tornado. I mean, we haven't really talked about Nicholson's performance, but right. the idea that anybody could really withstand that guy. Oh my I could God, see yeah. I could see her getting fed up with him specifically and what he is bringing out of the other patients, she still, it could be argues cares. I mean, at the end, after she is nearly killed, I don't know how she's still alive after, you know, he's choking her, ramming her head against the floor, digging his fingers into her, you know, yeah. into her throat. Her eyes but, like nearly popping out. Yeah. out. She's turning purple. The next time we see her, she's in a neck brace. She's leaning over, you know, smiling, like welcoming someone into the, the thing, yeah. a villain, would have either quit, I think, or the next time we see her, she would be like saying, turn the hoses on them, or that's it, you know, no food for a week, that kind of a thing. I don't see villainous behavior in this character. I think that would have been, but that's what makes it so good is that she's not outwardly villainous because most screenwriters would have probably done that. And I think in the book, from what I understand, she appeared more villainous. Where but she again, did stuff like that. that's that's the thing. I'm not yeah. talking about the book, and the book does not. Count oh no, no, I'm case. not talking about it either. I'm not talking about the book either. I'm just saying that the movie tried to balance the line whether she was outwardly villainous or not. You know, and I think most people's interpretation was when they see her. Um, but it's good that you saw the good in her. 
you know that's that's beautiful man uh, I'm a, I'm a and then she did have that she, she did have that upstairs area with all the people with lobotomies too which was sort of the straight indicator oh this is what she's capable of you know i know mcmurphy nearly tried to kill her and everything but i think at that point when when she nearly died from that patient instead of throwing him in jail she's like no i'm gonna do something much worse I'm going to cut not, half your brain out. And but it's not clear her. that she even had the authority to order something like that. I, I mean, she's, I, she's the head nurse on the floor. I don't know that she can sign the paperwork to have someone lobotomized. Well, I don't think she had to. They had to have a scene where she had a line saying lobotomy him. But you get that she did that, you know. I, I, I don't. don't I did. I did not get to be that. Verbalized on camera. But, no, I, I you know. didn't get that because that. You know the Murphy's actions, yeah. you know, on the ward that would have reached all the way up. To, we see the the panel of doctors a couple of times talking about this. This would have been their decision. Nurse Ratchet can make recommendations, but she's not calling the shots, right? I think there it's, it's possible that they would have discussed lobotomy, and maybe she chimed yeah. in and said sure, but she's not. Well, she had a mustache. She's not twirling her mustache and saying, "Yo, do this. I want it done now." That is something that's left ambiguous, but looking at this just from the, you know, an institutional, I keep using that word, but let's say yeah. a corporate situation, she's yeah. a middle manager at best. She's not throwing yeah. those levers. Well, I don't think that they specifically looked at the hierarchy of the institutionalized system in that sort of manner. Uh, I think, uh, you know, at that point, if it were up to the staff, as they said, they wanted to throw him in jail earlier, they'd say, yeah, throw him in jail. Like, we, he had a shot. He nearly killed her. He's done. Uh, but, yeah, it's open for interpretation of whether she decided to lobotomize him or not. Anyways, let's get to uh, Nicholson's R.P. McMurphy. Uh, I, I, I mean, as you can tell from my piece, for those who want to read it, uh, you guys won't. Uh, but no, no, they, they, they should because it's yeah, an excellent, excellent it's piece joke. of writing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I always like to say, hey, nobody gives a shit. They're not going to see. It. I always say that as a joke because uh, everyone wants you to smash that subscribe button. Um, but that too, subscribe yes. and read the piece. Yes, exactly. Um, smash, smash, smash. Okay, had to get it out. <sighs> I mean, I liked how at first when you see McMurphy, you think this guy's a fucking prick, you know, like he just goes around. He's bully. He seems like the high school bully who's yeah. going around. He's picking on everyone being like, oh, look at this guy. You like to look at people's cards, huh? You just smile. Dumb, dumb. Yeah. Oh, look at this. Hard on. That's what he keeps calling. Isn't that what Hardy? It was his name, Hardy. And he just called him uh, hard on. I just hard uh, harding. Harding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's why I called him hard on. I just got that. I didn't. I can't believe I just got that. Yeah. Jesus Christ, um, which I mean, he kind of was a hard on. He wouldn't shut up about his wife. You know, talk about that's a guy who really I think. Uh, anyways, I'll get into that later. <laughs> but, but yeah, at first you, you kind of are disgusted by this guy, you know, especially the, the whole thing when he sees the chief and he's going, oh, you know, that's like, wow, what a racist dick. But the thing and, and of course, the statutory rape thing, which, mm -hmm. oh, when he's describing one... that the uh, fifteen-year-old girl's vagina to the the Her head paper. admitting doctor, yes, wow, yeah, Jesus Christ, think of think of like all this. See, but that guy acted like a real doctor because he was one. When he said that, Nurse Ratchet would look disgusted. But then again, from a woman's perspective, you would be. But you'd have to be objective. So I'd be tougher, 
you know, the, the male doctor was kind of s- smiles like, yeah, that's, you know, but, you you know, he's probably thinking like, you sick motherfucker. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it's funny because uh, there were, that was one of two allusions to The Shining that I saw. You know, this is five years before that, but there was that interview scene, you know, Jack Nicholson going in to talk yeah. to the person who's about to lock him up for, you know, six months. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, at the end, you got Scatman Crothers coming in as the uh, the night attendant. Uh, there's a there's a funny thing about Scatman there. Uh, I don't know the third film they worked on, but Nicholson said to Scatman, you know, I'm going to put you in three films. And then the... Uh, Three films were Cuckoo's Nest, which turned out to be a classic. Shining turned out to be the classic. And the third one, I don't know. It didn't work. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was, uh, man, Scatman Crothers' character was a moron. Uh, <laughs> what an irresponsible idiot. Uh, God, that's one flaw I'd say with that movie. Like, that guy is supposed to be security watch, but then he's, like, rubbing the $10 bill against his fingers, and he's saying, well, I got some some girls here who want to come up. He's like, you're getting close, brother. Like, sorry for my racist voice. Uh, but that's sound more like Hulk Hogan than uh, Scatman Crothers, but hey, okay. come on, brother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hulk's racist. Um, uh, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's the, uh, he was, uh, it was awfully convenient. Although I could have seen a version of this scene going where, the inmates didn't all go crazy and lose control. I could have seen this working out because McMurphy presents himself as a rogue. He doesn't have any outward, you know, mental instability uh, like some of the other patients on the on the block. So, and he's also very charismatic. Uh, he's very cool. So I could see him, you know, in confidence, getting, saying the guy, "Just I got these girls out here. They can bring in some booze. We have a little party." You can get on this too. Here's some money. And the guy's like, fine, what's going to happen? But of course, they arouse the suspicion of everybody else. And the gremlins come out to play and things get out of hand. So, yeah, he's he does not make good decisions. But there is a version of this third act that I could see working in his favor. Yeah. I don't know, like, anyone who is a responsible guard, I think, would say, no, they, they can't come in. We can't, like, what, he had his superior come in earlier. Sure. And when all yeah. the guys are in the closet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, but with, with McMurphy, my point was, at first you hate him, but then you, you, you begin to like him because he sees how everyone is sort of being controlled by Ratchet, by the institution. And, of course, as later he finds out, they have the decision to um, you know leave at their own will at least the majority of them uh, he sort of wants to show them a life of opportunity a life of freedom and in a way he does kind of become friends with them especially in the end when he's saying goodbye to everybody and you know shaking their hands and all that he, he sort of becomes sort of the embodiment of someone who truly cares for you and the person who cares for you sometimes is the person who you don't think would, you know, it's the person who you think at first is deplorable, you know, who, who makes fun of you, who gives you a hard time, who has done awful things. But then as you get to know them, you find out just as he got to know these patients that as that they're not crazy and he's not really a bad person. He does bad things. Uh, abhorrent things that you, you know is unforgivable i mean having 
bragging about a 15 year old girl, girl's vagina is, is disgusting. Mm-hmm. But you find out that in the end he's, he's not, and this is a controversial to say this in 2020, but whatever the world's going to end anyway. So who cares uh, <laughs> that he, he isn't that he cares for these people on a much deeper level than the institution did. And he sort of gave them the, freedom to to be who they want to be i mean billy would have never had sex with candy and lose his virginity and become a man if mcmurphy didn't go out of his way to offer him that chance i mean mcmurphy if he didn't care for these guys he would have taken those keys he would have went right out that window and he said we're not gonna have a party but he decides to have a party and to show everyone a good time before he leaves and to that he's one of the sweetest characters i think i've ever seen on screen I'm going to push back on that and say that I think that he is an irredeemable scumbag. Um, I think there's evidence throughout the film to back that up. Look, again, he's charismatic. A lot of this comes down to Nicholson's performance. But if we're going to mm-hmm. talk about Scatman Crothers' irresponsibility as the guard, let's talk, or the night watchman, let's talk about um, McMurphy sneaking out, stealing a bus, and taking a group of eight other mentally ill patients out to a boat and sailing around catching fish. Sure. That's a cute little montage, especially with Vincent, Vincent Scavelli uh, doing the, you know, hooking the fish and then poking out the eye and putting it back in. That's a great little detail. Right. But he doesn't know these people. He hasn't, he hasn't been around them that long. Yes. They're voluntarily in there, but any one of them could have been, you know, psychotic, you know, on the verge of murder. Let's assume that Billy is suicidal what if he had decided to jump over the edge of the boat? So it's reckless. His idea of, you know, throwing a party at the end. Yeah, it gets out of control. He hadn't expected, much like Scatman Crothers, to yeah. have a party. But when it, he did realize that everybody else on the floor was coming after the booze, he did nothing to break it up. He just watched in this kind of detached amu- amusement. All these people are there from the beginning of the film to the end of the film for his kind of sick amusement. And he's only in it for himself. I think that he is able to relate to people because he has it's kind of insinuated that he, you know, on the outside was, I guess, charismatic enough to uh, seduce a 15 year old girl, apparently willingly. Um, but he also had to do that. Well, but I mean, he was a 35 year old man. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I can only speculate uh-huh. how how consensual that was. But also he got into five fights for which he was arrested. How many other fights for which he wasn't arrested? You know, I, f- I picture him as sort of a Bukowski character, um, mm-hmm. but with you know, minus the terrible complexion. <laughs> so, yeah, he's dangerous. I did not. I, I was conflicted watching this movie because, again, this is an iconic Jack Nicholson role. Mm-hmm. And it's a masterful role. And it's completely abhorrent, uh, abhorrent to me as a viewer. I'm like, I don't find this charming or cool. I think it's dangerous and irresponsible. And that's one of the reasons I was really hooked in and watching Louise Fletcher's reaction as Nurse Ratched to this guy. Because I'm thinking, does she do anything that I myself would not have done in this situation? And the answer is no. In order to deal with someone this extreme, you have to bring every bit of institutional power to bear so that that problem does not end up in a floor, you know, and the gremlins coming out. Mm. That's where I stand. I just throw him in jail. 
<laughs> that would but, just be a lot easier. But let's talk about, um, you know, because we kind of opened this discussion talking about the Reagan 80s and the complex history of, mm-hmm. you know, in- federal institutions being shut down and people being shut down the street. Uh, the same thing happened with prisons, um, you know, <laughs> prisoners being released and, and Absolutely. prisons themselves being these kind of crockpots for mentally yeah. ill people. I, I don't know what you get by sending him back to jail. Is he just going to yeah. kill someone or get knifed because he picks a fight with the wrong person? There are no easy answers. I don't know that this movie ha- is interested in those answers. Well, the that's the good thing about it not having easy answers is that it makes you examine and make the assumption of what you would do. Yeah, you know, and your perception of Ratchet. Uh, because I mean, for me, I, I'd honestly, I think as even doctors have to have a certain limit in where they can help somebody. And, you know, I think within the limits of McMurphy, I would instantly just say, you know what, we did what we could. This guy is clearly out of control. He deserves to be in a prison. You know, whatever happens there happens there. And I, I, I can't, you know, it's out of my hands. I can't deal with it. You know, just like when we deal with any sort of project where something is out of your control and it's too overwhelming, you have to sort of toss it aside and say, okay, let someone else take care of it. Um, but y- y- the, the thing with McMurphy that I liked is, uh, yeah, on the out- outwardly, he seems just like this horrible deplorable maniac uh when he's wa- when he's gleefully watching everyone drink at that institution he's happy because they're happy because they're having a good time you know if it, if it were up to uh i think someone who didn't give a shit about these guys the, it, he just would have left the place and that would have been it as you can see he was so when he's doing the group therapy session and he finds out that everybody is willfully institutionalized. You could see his heart break through Nicholson's face on that screen. You know, when he turns to Billy and he says, you know, you should be going around in a car getting birds. You know, like he's he's heartbroken that this kid's life is is being thrown in the garbage. And he wants to show these guys a good time when he's taking them fishing. Like, was it? a good morally right thing to steal a bus and have a bunch of people who could go around and possibly kill like everyone fly around. No, but he's not a good person. He is. He's a bad guy, but at the same time, he's not a bad guy and humans are not good people. We like to act like we're holier than thou, but we do horrible, unspeakable things. It's just that we don't talk about them. And the things that McMurphy did we're seeing front. He's not lying about the scumbag that he is, but in the end, he's just truly helping people. I well, first a couple, couple, couple of things to unpack there. Um, one, yes, humans as a species have done unspeakable things. I think it's a harder case to argue that we are uh, bad or you know rotten because we've also done. A lot more, I would argue, good things. Well, I didn't As say evidence... we're rotten. I, I said that we're, I don't mean to cut you off. We're not that we're rotten, but we have elements to ourselves, our own skeletons in the closet that McMurphy is willing to outwardly expose. 
some people, sure. I mean, there are there are different degrees of you know badness and goodness in people. So, but that's just you know you could say that about you know any. Well, I guess we're the only that we are aware of sentient uh, species. But there's no such thing as a perfect person, mm -hmm. just as there's no such thing as uh, an irredeemable, necessarily evil person, possibly up to a point. Except um, for Donald Trump. <laughs> well. Uh, your hero, Mr. McMurphy, uh, also grabbed someone, grabbed someone by the pussy. I did so. make a movie. I, I did have one. <laughs> he did, but he also didn't let thousands of people die. Uh, but uh, when, he was when president, is this? who knows? You're talking, about, <laughs> you're talking about the COVID crisis? Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. He, he didn't do anything. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. He decided yeah. to go golfing. Anyways, that, that's something else. Well, yeah, but I mean, I'm just saying... That is another thing that is up for discussion, but I would like to point out that he did form a COVID-19 task force in late January, right before he instituted the travel ban, which he got immediately harangued for as being racist, and for which Dr. Fauci said weeks later, probably saved thousands of lives. Right. So let's just call the balance sheet even for now. And yeah, let's, uh, let's not go into <laughs> politics. Yes. Starting down $200 million CDC office. Uh, but uh, no, no, no. Uh, but I, I will Re say restructuring, that. Restructuring. I would say restructuring. There is, an, there is, even with Donald Trump, there is a sympathetic angle you could take with, you know, his father who never really truly loved him and he really never truly learned the value of love or anything outside of material value in his life. And that's why he is the way he is. Well, but but you don't know him. You, yeah. you don't know him. That's again, that's speculation. That's projection. Yeah. You've never talked to the man. But that is, but that is. A, a sympathetic angle. Uh, <laughs> it is. It's a sympathetic angle tinged with an opinion that mm -hmm. is unfounded. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, well, we'll we'll leave it at that because that's we're going a little too off the rails. Sure. With that, yeah. Uh, but McMurphy, he, you know, he. I don't know if he's irredeemable. You know, he like humanity. He's flawed, but in the end, ultimately, he's good. I don't see the goodness though. That's that's mm -hmm. the thing. I, I don't see anything that he much like with Nurse Ratched. I'm looking for evidence in the film of good things that he does. He does things which in a different context could be seen as helpful. But in the way that he goes about it is extremely unhelpful and dangerous and ultimately selfish. Mm -hmm. You know, he could have snuck out and, you know, possibly the he goes out on that fishing trip, not because he wants to take them out on a field trip. It's because he wants to escape, and the only way he can do that is to get on the bus, which is going, you know, out of town, so he can steal it, right? Or perhaps it was both. <laughs> right, but there's, if he just, he can't just walk out, you know, through the gates of the building, right? Uh, gotta get He's, chief's help. Uh, right, yeah, yeah. With, the, with the sink. Um, <laughs> but no, but here's the thing, going back to the whole party aspect of it, you know, with the with the drinking and, you know, that, that last, or the second to last scene, if he really cared about those people and if he had been able to think outside of himself, you make the point that, yeah, he could have just left. But that would not that would not have been helpful. True. But would have been more helpful is once he realized the situation was getting out of control, put himself at risk by mm. going to the people who were on staff, the authorities and saying, hey, look, all the inmates are getting into a bunch of booze. You know, yes, I started it, but you got to get down here before something goes horribly wrong. Instead, what he did was he coerced Candy into having sex with this kid, Billy, who, again, he doesn't know if he's 
in there because he's got a problem with women, i.e. that problem is he has molested people or sexually assaulted them. You know, he could be the awkward guy that we've seen in movies before where he gets with a girl and maybe she laughs at him or giggles at him the wrong way and he starts beating her or killing her. We don't know any <laughs> yeah. of that context. Yeah. He's presented as this sweet, innocent kid, mm -hmm. but he's in this institution. Uh, I'm not trying to say that there is anything wrong with him, but we're not given information to think that there is nothing wrong with him outside of having a stuttering problem. Right. Well, I would say McMurphy's a good person, but he's not a smart person. So he made a dumb decision out of wanting to make other people happy. And who's to say we haven't made dumb decisions to make ourselves happy or to make others happy? You know, who's to say that even the stupid beach bros over in Florida are irredeemable, terrible people who thought they were killing people. They just thought, you know what? I just want to have a good time. And yes, there is an element of selfishness yeah. to McMurphy's actions. He could have easily gone to the staff, but if he went to the staff, not only would he get in trouble, he'd get everyone else probably in trouble as well. You know, however, Billy may still have been alive. Yeah, he may have been, but nobody could have predicted that would happen. Even nurse ratchet. Which is exactly up, why yeah. what he did was very irresponsible throughout this entire movie. And oh, yeah. one thing I, I do, I don't want to let go is you brought up uh, McMurphy's first reaction to Chief with the you know the hooting and hollering uh -oh. doing the the stereotypical oh, Indians. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so his first reaction to Chief was to do the hooting and hollering kind of stereotypical Indian yeah. stuff. Um, the movie, and I was very surprised at this. But yeah. when Chief goes in and puts the pillow over McMurphy's face and kills him, yeah. we get the, and I'm, I'm not on my musical instruments, but we get the kind of stereotypical Native American kind of like lutes and, you know, chirping sounds yes, over yes, the soundtrack. Yes. I'm like, what the hell are you trying to say? <laughs> the I did movie have a is problem almost making that. that point that Murphy was doing. is like, the only characteristic this guy has is he's Native American. <laughs> yes. Uh, I did have a problem with that too, actually. Uh, it is set to the to the tune of the song "Set Me Free," uh, but you know, yeah, it's like okay, we know. I guess because it was the book was based on Chief, but that's too much of a deep cut for the audience to get. And secondly, I, I wish they didn't go with the Chief's theme because we know in the end the Chief is the one who pretended he was crazy, but really wasn't. And he was also the one who was outwardly a criminal, although he I think he killed his father because his father was an abusive alcoholic. From what I recall him confessing to Murphy. Um, but the movie does kind of make you question if Murphy's crazy or not. And the movie also kind of, I guess, in a way, confirms in the end that probably McMurphy was crazy, and Chief was the actual criminal, but he was the one who was set free in the end, and he gave everyone the inspiration to do that, which is why they set it, the the, the, the Native American instruments towards him, but I, I agree, they didn't need to implement that. It's like, in case you forgot, he's Indian. like... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But 
Yeah, do you think McMurphy might have been crazy, or do you think he was just an asshole? I, th I think he was just an asshole. Because, I mean, and again, I don't, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Yeah. I get most of my knowledge from movies. But one yeah. of the things that I understand, perhaps incorrectly, is that if you're insane, one of the characteristics is you don't know you're insane. There may be people who have psychopathy, you know, or there might be sociopaths who understand that they have a problem. They just are incapable of giving a shit. Um, yeah, and man yeah. that manifests in certain ways. Some people just kind of are buttoned up and they don't care about people. Others, you know, are just aggressive and, you know, see the world as a sandbox <laughs> that yeah. they get to play in. But I don't think he was crazy. And that was the big debate. Yeah. You know, the reason they locked him up and observed him was like, no, he's not, you know, shitting himself and, you know, wondering what? if he's a seagull. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's he's just he's looking for a way out and his reaction to, you know, Billy and all the other people finding out that they were in there voluntarily. Yeah. I don't know that, that was necessarily empathy. I thought he's like, that's crazy. Like you guys, you know, should be out there. Why would you want to be in this place? You know, that's just I, he couldn't understand. I, th I think he thought it was crazy because he felt so so bad that they were there um or it could have just been what the fuck man but you don't know i'd go with option b yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 um i think i don't know it is i can't tell if he was crazy or not because obviously his intention to go to the mental institution in the first place was to you know was to to get out of the to get out of the jail um you know it was get out of jail free card and of course when he finds out when he's in the pool through the security guard that Oh no, they're gonna keep you here. They don't let you go. You know, that's when uh he realized, oh shit, I'm actually stuck here. And that's when I think the so no, I don't think he's crazy. I think the institution drove him crazy. You know, if it didn't drive him crazy, he wouldn't have tried to help out all those guys in that place. Um well, again, we're getting back to a debate of whether or not he was helping them out. Yeah. Um, whether either deliberately or accidentally. I don't think the institution drove him crazy. I think what happened was he came face to face with the consequences of the actions. Mm -hmm. He didn't like it. So he just kind of acted out like a child. Mm -hmm. He was kind of freewheeling and carefree. I've got this whole thing rigged and gamed when they're like, no, now you can't leave. He was like, what the fuck? I mean, that's just that's what happens when you break the rules. And that might not be cool or hip. But again, yeah. that's one of the things that keeps us from living Game of Thrones. <laughs> You were frozen um, for a second. You're back. <laughs> oh yeah, you were frozen too. I heard right. that's one of the things. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, so I was saying that's one of the things that keeps us from living in Game of Thrones is having rules. Unfortunately, I haven't seen Game of Thrones, so I've seen, I've seen, I've seen bits. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess like everyone's competing for the throne and goes some teenage kid or something. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> the idea of like you know pretty much like lawlessness and rape and murder and yeah. you know everything kind of up for grabs societally you know we've come a long way baby as they say um yeah. and unfortunately that means that some people who really want to express their ultimate freedom can't for the yeah. <laughs> protection and betterment of others well yes I, I, that is sort of mcmurphy's playground to to do horrible things Except he, you know, in the end, what it does isn't so horrible. He shows these men an opportunity to find a a bit of happiness, 
in their current situation. And yeah, I agree. And that's what I was getting at earlier. I think he acts. Yeah. Accidentally kind of does help them, you know, through, through that, that fishing trip, Mm -hmm. you know, who's to say, (laughs) I know back in 1989, I think Michael Keaton was in that movie, the dream team where he was kind of that same. It was like the, the overt comedy version of this movie um, where, you know, he's taking them on outings or something. I remember very little about that movie, but I could just, imagine there might be advanced therapies in the intervening decades of having people in a controlled situation go out and experience things you know if nurse ratchet or the uh, institution had been aware enough or not scared enough of you know taking those chances maybe that would have been a new thing that they could have tried that would have made some some differences other than what they were working or what were they were seeing that wasn't working obviously yeah um so do you feel like this movie in a way might be a allegory for the broken mental health care system at the time or because I know I was telling someone about that and they're like, no, you're completely reaching, you know, I, with your own bias. I, I would say I would say that it's a reach. Um, yeah. It's easy to look back on it through a 2020 lens and draw those parallels. But what you have to realize is the national conversation about health care uh, or mental health care was mm-hmm. not uh it was mostly from what i've seen like localized to the california issue with with reagan at this time as governor mm-hmm. and some of the things that he had tried to do in 1980 is when jimmy carter uh passed that uh that health the mental health uh systems act which yeah right which reagan when he came in you know he got elected in 80 came in 81 yeah. and immediately kind of undid that but mm-hmm. what you're seeing is a movie that came out five years before that national conversation got off the ground yeah, well, that was the thing is I think people were talking about it back then, but it was something that people were suffering with. Uh, people who weren't mentally well were institutionalized, maybe some who could have gotten better but didn't get the help they needed. And it was a conversation that opened up that uh, I would say not through a 2020 lens, not through a 2010 lens or a 1990 lens, but through a lens before that movie and after that movie, it's timeless regarding how we are being failed. You know, when they talk about medication time, like, yeah, I did kind of see that as an allegory for, and it could have been a reach, but uh, I did see that as an allegory for, you take your medicine, you shut up, you don't worry about your problems. Medicine will fix everything. It'll be fine. You know? Well, I, I, I gotta disagree there because they did have the group therapy thing. They didn't just give them medicine and then have them go back to their cells so they'd be quiet and out of space or out of mind. They were passing out the medications that each person needed. It's kind of like saying, you know, we, we were talking about your antidepressant medication yeah. or or whatever it is that you were prescribed and you were having yeah. some difficulty uh, getting that, you know, having to go through your psychiatrist. If your psychiatrist had said, no, you don't get your medication, that would have put you up shit creek. I am assuming mm-hmm. to some degree, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like you don't need medication. These people obviously needed medication. Now, if there'd been some kind of a subplot about how they're all being given the same thing or it's just to dull their senses so we don't have to talk to them, maybe you got a case there. But again, based on what the movie is giving us, it's something that is necessary, that is a gateway to get them to be calm enough in order to have a group setting conversation where they can talk out their problems. It's like a, establishing a baseline. 
Yeah, uh, you broke up a little there, but I, I think I got uh, most of the point. Yes, it is something to keep them in line. And yes, they have the group therapy, but yet everything kind of goes through this continuous cycle. You know, they play the same music on the uh, on the little record player whenever they take their medicine. Dun, 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 dun. And when I, and they're, they're they're banned from seeing the World Series, even when they have a majority vote to see it. You know, I thought that was a beautiful moment for McMurphy right there. Um, and everything is done by this very strict, simple routine that isn't concerned with the individual patients, but is more concerned with kind of creating a structure, a system, you know, for a society that works. And then when someone rattles that system uh, unconscious to uh, what their actual goal is uh, you see how that infrastructure is disturbed in a way that isn't really meant to help people but just to to generate a, a sense of normality and comfort that isn't beneficial to those who are actually sick and it's well, that, through the mise-en-scene of the film, through the usage of that uh, music that's continually used, through those reaction shots where you're seeing everyone uh, react in a certain way, where, 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 um, uh, where, where Milos Foreman has the camera on someone's face for so long, you want to see the pain, the disillusionment, the, the, the discomfort that they have and how nothing is working for them. Well, I mean, that, that is one way of looking at it. From a film, filmmaking standpoint, I agree. But as far as the, you know, the group therapy aspect of it <clears throat> and the sort of one-size-fits-all solution, the other side to that is they're working with what they have, right? Mm -hmm. Even if you were to throw billions and billions of dollars at the healthcare problem and say what these folks need is individualized care. Let's mm -hmm. say you have a million... Uh, you know, this is a way low number, I'm assuming, but let's say you have a million mentally ill people who all need individual therapy programs. What you need then is a million therapists who are qualified to handle these cases. But mm -hmm. we're not talking about that. We're talking about, let's say, 30 million or 50 million. Are there 50 million therapists who are going to be paid by what state and gov federal institutions to do this? And, you know, what's the success rate? Also, it's not just this one person that you're going to be like, here's my personal therapist who's going to help me for the next 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. You're also going to have new crops of patients every year, every six months, every three months popping up, and it becomes an exponential problem. So what you have to have are, again, institutional solutions that, you know, sort of have to wrap everything up because otherwise mm -hmm. it just it it's going to collapse. Yeah. And it's not perfect. I'm not saying I'm advocating for it. No, I'm saying I, that's part of the problem. No, I, I'm actually kind of absorbing what you're saying and, and, and understanding it. Um, yeah, unfortunately, in a way, how we kind of have to deal with herd immunity with the coronavirus, we have to, in a way, sometimes you can't help everyone. You just can create a system that can help them to a certain extent. Uh, I think the point of the movie was that the system wasn't doing enough perhaps with individualized care um which had its own angle um as time moves on i think relating to that film standpoint 
there could be more effort put into these these uh, institutions. I mean, therapy is so damned expensive that nobody can get it when they really need it. And I, I know like I, I had to pay so much money for therapy myself. And therapy is something that also is viewed as taboo and cliche in society. If someone says, I want to go see my therapist, they go, oh, you, you must be there must be something wrong with you. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I mean, the reason I wrote this piece and I'm being so open about myself now is because I feel like after this horrible pandemic happens, I think we will have a more empathetic society that is going to look out for each other because we have to doesn't change until trophy happens or until there's a violent revolution not that i'm advocating that in any sort of way um but through a movie like this i i want people to who who maybe have struggled like i have or uh who maybe uh see something in this film who don't struggle with it can understand you know this thing was broken back then and people still are not getting help now and it could be financially because they can't afford it or it could be uh emotionally where you have therapists who are just overbooked especially now yeah and they have to do these skype sessions with patients because they don't want their patients to kill them um uh you know on inadvertently um I, I think that there is there the, the overarching point of the movie beyond solutions that you and I can adjust because we we aren't in charge of the the logistics of fixing such a system, but we can only uh, come from the standpoint of the individual who is being forgotten about, much like how. The government just sends a twelve hundred dollars stimulus check. I'm like, oh, this is get you through for a month. Good luck, you know. Yeah. While the rest of the world is, you know, if you look at Europe, they're covering people for basically a year, which is what we need. Uh, if we can have massive societal change towards that, towards our physical healthcare system, I feel Cuckoo's Nest is a representation of how a mental healthcare system that was broken then is even more broken now, and when you know I, I hopefully two or three or four years from now it can be fixed where people who really aren't ill but are treated as ill and people who are ill who aren't being treated for being ill um especially during these times where suicide rates will go up where when people lose everything they they will snap you know where th there will be massive riots and fires in the street i'm gonna guess you know months from now uh, we had to figure out a way where we could treat people mentally. And I think it's important to open up a discussion for mental health now and important to see how that movie addresses mental health uh, back then and how even today it, it, it cared so much more for people who are mentally unwell than something like Joker did, where although I liked it, it, it still felt like, what else can we add? He he laughs uncontrollably. He uh, doesn't know how to talk to women. He's obsessed with his mom, which is like apparently every walking Phoenix role, you know, and this is a movie that looks at people who are mentally unwell and it doesn't see them as dangerous. One person who's dangerous is a person who is okay, uh, presumably mentally, but the people who aren't, uh, 
instead of getting help and living a a, a life that could be wonderful are are left behind yeah. that's sort of my rant <laughs> no no it's 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 a very hopeful rant uh, <laughs> if there is such a thing um yeah i one thing i hope that comes out of this is you know pre covid a lot of people i think were you know this is part of the social media age that we're living in they're very much locked down in their own bubbles yeah. you know reading the same stuff talking to the same people not really engaged in the outside world but now that the outside world has to a large extent been taken away from us yeah once this thing opens back up and i'm you know i've heard the 18 months thing i don't know if that's true or sustainable i believe that we're going to be getting back to work or you know, opening things mm -hmm. back up much sooner because, as yeah. has been said, the <laughs> cure cannot be worse than the disease. You want to talk about complete societal collapse? Eighteen months, you know, the world will be over by that point. Yeah. However, I would like to think, and maybe this is just the optimist in me. Once people can walk outside, it's kind of like the end of Jojo Rabbit <laughs> when uh, when she walks outside after you know having hid in that that closet from the Nazis for however many years. Yeah. Uh, it's just you know, seeing people and hugging and, you know, I don't know when we'll be able to hug again, but at least, you know, <laughs> high fives and just human contact once again. I hope that it does, you know, create a backlash against this insular society that we've created for ourselves with social media and get back to something that's actually more social. And maybe that's how we get the building blocks for more empathy, more care that we need to give to people, more outreach, um, and change some of our policies and business practices and whatever else needs so that people who need the help get the help they need. And again, not just from, you know, writing prescriptions or writing people off. Yeah, exactly. I, I hope that, you know, I don't, when I say 18 months, I don't mean like everything is going to be in complete lockdown for 18 months. Yeah. Uh, what I mean is, You'll have restaurants open up, but everything will be like half capacity. Yeah. You know, people will have to be six feet apart, not the people eating at the table who know each other. Mm, um, yeah. But I mean, and even with the resurgence of the disease, sometimes it's like they said, herd immunity. When, when they, I mean, for me mentally, when I was listening to an episode of Pod Save America because I'm a fucking lefty piece of shit. Oh, uh, no, I didn't. <laughs> uh, but. I was listening to an episode of Pod Save America, and they had this doctor on, highly qualified, but he said this thing that I just thought was the most selfish thing imaginable. He said, "What the the person interviewing him said, you know, we hear we're going to be locked down for eighteen months. Like, how do you, you know, how do you think Americans will respond to that?" And he said, "Well, it's going to be eighteen months, and we just had to learn not to be so selfish." And to hunker down because, you know, your grandma, your grandpa is going to die, you know, if, if, you know, you go, you know, if you go out and it's just a new way of life. It's like, yeah, but guess what? If nobody's making any money, they're going to die in the street anyways. Right. And people will go insane. And when they go insane, people are going to start. I think there were like scenes in, in, in uh, uh, Contagion where people are starting to loot stores and yeah. things of that nature. And it's like, that's what's going to happen next. And it's going to get really bad. And yeah, that, that, we that want to prevent that. <clears throat> yeah, that doctor's interview, and I, I didn't listen to him, I'm just going based on what you said. Yeah. That response is a late March 2020 response 
to a question that we're talking about 2021. I understand what he meant by that selfish comment. He's talking about the Florida kids who are mm-hmm. out, you know, eh, if I get COVID, I get COVID or whatever. And, yeah. or, and he got it, right? And then he came out and apologized. <laughs> we still see people, you know, unfortunately, uh, we we tried it, right? We tried saying, hey, everybody, stay inside, you know, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And weeks went by, the weather got nice, people are going out to parks, they're biking, they're congregating. And then Lori Lightfoot has to step in and says, look, motherfuckers, now we have to close the beaches and the parks. We got cops stationed everywhere, you know, because yeah. folks just don't get it. That's what I believe he's talking about in terms mm-hmm. of being selfish. But that is also a very present day and not thinking mm-hmm. about you know, a year and a half from now, it's not going to be a matter of selfish. It's a matter of a people going stir crazy, perhaps literally, and B, depending on what the supply chains look like, you know, not being able to f- actually provide for themselves. Yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 horribly insensitive. Uh, I don't know if he misspoke or if he just wasn't thinking about what he's saying. But that is that's irresponsible. Yeah. Well, that, that's sort of the the general consensus from the medical community that they're saying, well, you know what? It's either you die or you don't have a job, and you can get your job back. I'm like, well, I won't have a job if I'm living in the fucking streets, you know. Right. And homelessness is something that Reagan created when he shut down Carter's health care act. All of it's in my piece. Um, please read. And uh, 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 if we become homeless, we're gonna die. And it's like I'm starting. Like I, I literally have had like a few episodes already. You know, and a lot more people are going to. And it's 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 something that that we really need to think about our mental well-being, because, I mean, the therapists who are talking to people right now are talking to therapists because the, the, their patients need therapists. Yeah. And, and God, God, imagine the suicide hotlines, you know, the, so there was a woman calling a hotline and she said, I went to a store and I hugged my daughter and I'm worried I might, you know, I might kill her because I hugged her and, you know, cause my daughter was scared. She was crying and, you know, she had to tell her, well, you, you comforted your daughter. That was the right thing to do. But it's like, how long can a parent comfort their family before it, it before they don't know what to say to their, yeah. to their kids, you know, before, before like we can't console with the people we love and then they can't get the help that they need. And then either suicide goes up or we starve or what, what have you. Well, I mean, unfortunately the best we can do right now is just do the Alcoholics Anonymous thing, which is take it one day at a time and do the best we can and continue to reach out. And, you know, I, I got to go in a couple of minutes, but um, I just do want to say that, you know, whatever you need, if you ever, need to talk yeah you know i'm i'm always a skype or a text away oh <laughs> uh, you, you don't want to talk to me when i'm on an episode uh you unless you want to hear me screaming incessantly and crying yeah <laughs> talk to me call me up before you get to that point and we'll see what we can do <laughs> no, no. you don't want to hear that. but no uh again i wouldn't kill myself i wouldn't do that just because i wouldn't want my parents to live with that. Um, It's not not even a matter of something as extreme as that. It's a matter of, you know, people sound so cheesy, but people need people. And, you know, sometimes you just need to really talk to somebody and, and reach out. So, yeah. yeah. And in the end, in Cuckoo's Nest, they could talk to McMurphy, you know, he cared for them. He was a bully asshole, but he actually listened to them, you know, maybe not for hard on, you know, that guy, um, (laughs) 
and complain about his wife so much. You know, it wasn't a Christopher Lloyd's character who goes, every day you're talking about your wife, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, right. But that's not necessarily what he needed. I mean, that's that's a level of insensitivity that mm-hmm. Nurse Ratched was at least trying to get him to talk about. Yeah. See, right? that's what I thought. I thought she was being insensitive in those sessions. But I could see where the, oh, God, I, a lot of people, are gonna, a lot of therapists are going to turn it to Nurse Ratched. <laughs> this is going to happen. Uh yeah. Yeah, but no, uh, I think on on that hopeful note, uh, th- <laughs> I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, of course, you can check out Ian Simmons at kickseek.com. He's you've been incredibly supportive of me, and I really do want to thank you. Like you, you've helped me a lot in uh, in my career with trying to be a critic. Hopefully, we can still have movie theaters after this. Yeah. Uh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Because what's the value in it if you're watching it on an early screener? You know? But no, thank you so much for everything you've done for me. And I like having these conversations. I don't want to just agree with everyone. I know it's called You'll Probably Agree. I should have probably called the show You'll Probably Not Agree. Whatever. <laughs> Too late. Um, well, I, I will say that thank you for having me. It's yeah. always fun. I love talking to you about movies and, and life yeah all that stuff so yeah anytime man okay all right love your brother we'll uh we'll love i'll talk yeah all right, all right. Is... okay that's not politically wow. correct <laughs> all right man take it easy all right <laughs> all right you have a good one all right Great thanks too. everybody for watching please subscribe on youtube to ypa reviews you can also follow us on instagram twitter everything on ypa dub you get Come on, you guys, YPA stands for you'll probably